Good morning, Natasha Dali. Welcome on VH Berries. Good morning, Victor. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I found out that before being a journalist, you were an English teacher in Busan, South Korea. Yes, I lived in Busan, South Korea for almost three years. Uh, and while I was there, I was an English teacher and I wrote uh, English textbooks for students. So it was an amazing experience. Um, I, I miss it so much. <laughs> When I finished uh, university, I was looking to sort of find a way to see the world. I didn't really know yet what I wanted to do for a career. Um, but I knew I really wanted to travel. I knew I really wanted to kind of get out of the, get out of Canada where I grew up and where I went to school, um, and explore. And so, uh, my cousin actually was teaching English in Busan, South Korea. Uh, and there was a job at her school open. And so I ended up taking it and going over. So, uh, about two months after I graduated university, I moved to South Korea and I ended up staying for almost three years. Uh, I finished one year, came back to Canada for a bit, and then I returned. So, uh, while I was there, I got to teach students from age three years old, uh, up until, you know, adult age. Um, I got to travel all over to China, Thailand, uh, Japan, and it was an incredible experience. And after I, I returned home, um, I missed it for a long time. So I think it was hard kind of coming back and, you know, figuring out what I was going to kind of do next, um, because I had such an exciting experience overseas. But I think that is really what gave me a taste for, um, you know, loving travel, uh, for loving exploring other cultures, other places. And so I think that that sort of like planted the seeds in me uh, to want to continue to kind of explore for, for my career. Absolutely, Natasha Dali, because you're from uh, Toronto in Canada, as you mentioned. Yes, I'm from Toronto, uh, born in Toronto, raised in Toronto. And then uh, for university, I actually went to school in Halifax, Nova Scotia, on the east coast of Canada. So, uh, I mean, I, I lived in Canada my whole life until I, I graduated university at, at age 22. So I was at that point ready to kind of get out and, and see the world. And since then, you are working as a journalist at National Geographic. And this last few months, for example, you have been covering uh, some stories about animals and also about the pandemic. Yes. So I've been, at, I've been at National Geographic for almost six years now, um, which is, I can't believe it's, it's been that long because time has flown by. Uh, but for the past, you know, for the past year, I've been really focused on covering how animals are affected by, um, coronavirus. So what I do at Nat Geo is I, I write stories about animals. Uh, that's what I do. So I cover everything from, wildlife conservation, um, to animal welfare, um, to the ways that kind of humans interact with and exploit animals. Um, so I, I do a range of sort of happy stories about how people are um, kind of helping to protect animals. But I also do a lot of coverage on how we uh, how humans, you know, affect animals for better or for worse. Uh, so yes, this past year has been um, for everyone, unlike, you know, anything else we've dealt with. I think for so many journalists, we basically in a lot of ways, like devoted, like pivoted really to kind of covering our own beats uh, through the lens of, of COVID because, 
it's it took over everything so it was like impossible to kind of tell stories without um you know mentioning COVID or without looking at any story through that lens so um you know I'm lucky that I had uh, a beat that was so you know narrow so animals I tell stories about animals and of course as we know this is zoonotic disease um we knew very little and we still know very little about how animals are affected by the virus um so it's been it's been a journey over the past year to try to not only tell these stories, but really find out information that um, a lot of people just didn't really know. I mean, a lot of this has been a mystery. So I've had to sort of work on uncovering information in real time, which has been um, which has been an adventure. <laughs> not only covering animals is very important, uh, but I feel that this uh, last year, this last 365 days, um, the animals have been left behind, I feel, because we often uh, forget that we are not alone in this planet. Yes, I think that's a really um, important point, because I think that if this virus did sort of anything um, in terms of increasing our knowledge about the natural world, I think it, it really showed us how wildlife and humans are so interconnected. I mean, this virus, this coronavirus is a zoonotic disease. It's believed, and of course, we still don't yet know the, the origins, but it's um, believed to have originated in some sort of wild vector. So an animal in the wild, we don't know yet how it jumped to humans, but that's sort of the belief. So I think, you know, we're we're, you know, unable to ignore the fact that how we encroach on the environment and on wildlife and how we sort of our relationships with the natural world, um, it's it's fundamentally linked. Uh, so I think that, you know, this virus has affected humans on a massive, massive scale. Um, but I think what what I've sort of been lucky to do is there's so many great journalists and scientists and um, you know all sorts of people focused on telling the stories of how the virus has affected humans. Uh, but I've sort of focused on how it's affected animals, and um, that's been it's been it's been really interesting. I think to find those stories and tell them. So you've been following multiple cases concerning multiple uh, species, for example, uh, orangutans, bonobos. So Natasha Dali, what conclusions have you made from uh, this uh, last year? Well, uh, it's a good question. I think, um, you know, for starters, we we don't the the number of species who have contracted coronavirus um uh naturally is is actually very few so we have dogs cats tigers lions uh minks ferrets um and gorillas i think i may be missing one or two but uh the reality is that there are a handful of species who have contracted this virus and so my challenge has been telling those stories um so last year i reported on the first tigers to contract coronavirus at the bronx zoo in new york um and then you know i recorded on as you mentioned uh i reported on uh some bonobos and orangutans at the san diego zoo in california uh that actually received a vaccine that was developed for animals uh just a couple months ago so every time i i kind of come across a new story about animals and the virus it's always um it's been groundbreaking in some ways these cases it's sort of the first time 
this is happening. The first case in tigers, the first vaccine for animals. Um, I reported on the first dog in the U.S. to uh, test positive. So it's been um, different from what I'm used to reporting, which I'm used to telling stories about systemic issues. So, so things that have issues with animals that have been in place for a while um, and I'm I'm trying to kind of find a new angle on but this over the past year all of these stories have been completely new and you know which brings its own set of challenges but I think it's also um, it's a really uh, as a reporter I think it's given me a way to sort of um, you know tell stories in a way I normally wouldn't uh, because there's not a lot that has been written on on this situation yet so far so uh, it's been it's been really interesting it's been a long year but it's been it's been um, as a reporter it's been challenging sure and 24 7 you are living with uh, three rabbits are they uh, vulnerable uh, to uh, this uh, pandemic or are they so strong and powerful Good question. I think yes, I have three. I have three pet bunnies. Uh, they're all rescue bunnies. So I, I rescued them all from from a shelter. Uh, they had been found outside and, and various things. So now they live in my home with me. They're all litter box trained, which means just like a cat, they can use the litter box. And so they're kind of free roaming. They, they roam around my apartment, do their thing. Um, and yeah, it's a good question about the virus because I have thought about that, you know, is if I got the virus, could my could my pets be, um, could they be susceptible? Uh, I don't think I've gotten the virus, um, not that I know of. So they've been okay. Um, but yeah, I think it's every pet owner, it's it's crossed your mind. It's like, what if my pet got this and I just didn't know about it? Um, so it's kind of funny. It's like I'm reporting on stories about pets and owners getting the virus, but I'm also a pet owner myself. So it's sort of like you're living through those fears and concerns that you're writing about, uh, which which doesn't happen all that often. A word um, that is very important for you, Natasha Dali, is, as you said, uh, welfare, which means uh, the health, happiness, and fortunes of uh, an animal. So you mean that um, they have feelings and they are uh, not very uh, far from us. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's um, that's a great way to describe it. I think that, you know, so I, I report a lot on animal welfare, which means I tell stories of how um, how animals suffer in many cases because of human activity. Um, and so it's it's um, I think over the past, you know, few decades and especially over the past, you know, 10 years or so, I think people have become a lot more aware that animals have. Yes, that animals feel pain just like we do, that animals have complex social lives, that they have complex relationships with their with their with their families, with their children. Um, so I think that people are becoming more aware of this and in turn are becoming more interested in, in hearing these stories. And uh, so I write a lot about kind of how um people like you and me uh, affect animals. So a lot of the things I've talked about are kind of how how our travel affects animals and how um, the products we buy affects animals. So I think that, you know, it, it's, it's really great for me to be able to tell stories that I think the average person can really relate to um, and might even change their own habits. So uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's rewarding. And if we 
take the span of time and history. Uh, there is also the conservation. And I believe that you are more focused on the present and future um, and not really uh, um, focusing on the past because uh, they are not uh, in your uh, field of studies. Um, yeah, I tell a lot of stories about about conservation and uh, one that comes to mind is one that I wrote uh, about a year and a half ago now about a the world's largest refugee camp actually in Bangladesh. And, um, you know, over at the time, 600,000 people were living in this refugee camp. But uh, the location of the camp was actually situated right on top of a really vital elephant migration corridor um, by no fault of anyone. This is just where the camp happened to be, but it happened to be on this corridor. So what was happening was um, these elephants were trying to migrate, uh, you know, th do their usual path, but they were hitting the camp. And unfortunately, there was a lot of human um, elephant conflict. Uh, some people died because elephants were, you know, walking through you know, kind of freaked out um, and ended up trampling some some homes. Uh, so that story, I think, was so interesting to me because it really showed the kind of, you know, ways that that humans and animals can can kind of intersect and then tension can arise when no one's intending for that to happen but it just sort of did so um i think the the kind of big plan was to hopefully uh reopen a corridor so the elephants could safely migrate through the camp but of course that's just such a logistical challenge because you have to move homes you have to move like hundreds of thousands of people um so i think that's an example of of sort of the, the kind of story Story I like to tell that's very current. It's about kind of what's happening now and it's solutions oriented. So it's telling a story about a problem, um, but also including how people hope to maybe fix it in the future. So I always like to, I don't just like to tell stories of like this horrible thing is happening to animals um, and that's it. Uh, I really like to include in my stories, you know, what people are doing to try to help or what like even you as a reader can try and do to help. When I said that you weren't interested in the past, I was meaning that you are not reporting on dinosaurs, for example. And as you said, on uh, migrant population that are uh, struggling because uh, of climate change, of some uh, animals and... Um, yeah, yeah, I don't report on dinosaurs. That's the one, I guess, animal that I don't cover. Um, but I have some colleagues at Nat Geo who, who do great stories, um, great storytelling about dinosaurs, more on our science desk. So yeah, I'm writing about animals that are alive right now, um, not extinct yet. And fingers crossed, um, I can keep telling those, those stories about animals that are alive right now and more and more aren't going to go extinct. <laughs> And just before, you just mentioned the fact that you like um, to send a positive message at the end and to find some solution. And this is exactly what you've done in uh, your feature stories called uh, Suffering Unseen, the dark truth behind uh, wildlife uh, tourism. Because at the beginning of the video, you're portraying all the, the chaos happening and in the second part you're showing for example um, the elephants that are kept uh, uh, safely um, 
in which the tourists cannot um, approach them too close and the elephants are responsible and they are the one decided deciding if they want to meet the tourists. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, the story you're talking about, I reported over two years uh, on four different continents. So I, um, I, I basically set out to tell a story of how our travels, so basically tourism and people's kind of desire to get close to wild animals is driving an industry where a lot of animals are actually being exploited. So, um, and this is really being fueled through social media. So for example, um, you know, riding elephants or swimming with dolphins or uh, watching circus performances. Um, these are things that people love to kind of do on vacation and then take videos and photos and share on social media. And then other people see it and kind of want to do the same thing. So that was a story I set out to tell. Um, I, I spent time in Thailand where uh, the video you're, you're describing took place um, and I visited many elephant camps where tourists go and they ride elephants, not realizing, of course, that these elephants are trained in ways that can be um, very painful. Uh, they're, they're kept in very small enclosures a lot of the time on chains. Um, but as you said, I really wanted to not just tell the story about the, the really horrible stuff, but I wanted to include how things are starting to change. Um, so there are many kind of sanctuaries opening up for elephants where elephants are taken off the chains, where they're able to kind of roam around and kind of engage in natural behaviors and where people can't ride them, can't touch them. They don't have to do tricks. Um, so that was something that I really wanted to include um, to let sort of, you know, if you're watching my video or reading my story for you as the reader to kind of decide, okay, what do I want to um, fund with my money? What do I want to participate in? Do I want to participate in um, an experience that, yes, lets me ride an elephant, but it may also be perpetuating suffering in that elephant's life. Or would I rather, um, you know, have an experience where I can't get close to that elephant, but I can watch it sort of walk around and, and, and you know, kind of do its thing. Um, so I think that's really what I wanted to, to kind of show the viewer is that there are options and ultimately... I can't tell you what to do. Um, and that's not, I don't want to tell you what to do, but but you can sort of choose for yourself. And again, on this video, we often say that uh, journalists have to put their emotion uh, next to them, you know, to stay impartial. But uh, Natasha Dali, I feel that um, you put it a lot of you in this um, story because, for example, uh, At night, you filmed uh, the elephant with the spike around his leg. And I felt that you were so sad for him. I don't know if you were almost crying, but it was very touching to watch. Thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're describing a, a, we went to one elephant camp during the day and there was this very young elephant um, who was on a chain, a very short chain and around her ankle, uh, there were some spikes from, from the chain pressing into her ankle and it was causing her pain. And so she couldn't put her foot down. So, um, for myself and the, the photographer, Kirsten, who was with me, um, it was very shocking. Uh, and so we asked her, her caretakers, we said, you know, does she always stay on this spike chain? And they said, oh no, we always take it off at nighttime. 
Um, and so we actually returned at night uh, with permission of the camp to kind of photograph it at night. And while we were there, we, we checked on her and it turned out that she still was on that same spiked chain. Um, so I think for us, and yeah, you'll see in the video, I mean, I, I'm filming myself in real time finding her and it was um, very, I think, distressing uh, seeing this animal right in front of me in so much pain. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think as a journalist, and again, I spent a month there recording this or reporting this story, and it's very important to keep my personal feelings to myself, uh, not only because my job is a reporter and my job is to report and not inject my personal opinions into the story I'm telling, but I think just for me to be able to get through it, to be able to um, spend entire days at these camps with these animals and then return the next day over and over and over, uh, the easiest way for me to sort of get through it was to try and check my emotions um, kind of at the door and focus on my job. And that's what made it kind of easy for me to kind of keep going and reporting every day. Um, now, that being said, I mean, you saw me, you can see me in the video getting emotional at times because, you know, I, I, I'm a human first and, and a journalist second. So I think that at times, yes, it, it, it was, you see me reacting. Um, but yeah, I think that that was that's just the struggle um, and the hard part about reporting on these sorts of stories. And it goes for any journalist who's reporting on difficult emotional um, situations where there's human or animal suffering. Um, it can be hard at times. I am very curious about the process behind this feature story. So, as you said, you were uh, with a Brooklyn photographer, uh, Kirsten Luce. And for uh, reporting this story, you traveled uh, for around um, 18 months uh, over four different countries. Yes, so we uh, we spent almost two years uh, reporting this story. Of course, we took breaks, breaks in between. We were home and then we went back. Um, I think we spent a total of four months in the field. And what that means is like a four months on the ground reporting this story. Uh, we went to Hawaii. We went to the Amazon rainforest. Uh, we went to Thailand. We went to Russia. Uh, we went all over the world because what we really wanted to do was make this a global story and not just make it like what's happening in one place. Um, because the reality is that people traveling to interact with animals is something that happens all over the world. Uh, so we, it was, it was, you know, um, a lot. I mean, Kirsten and I are so close that like we work really well together. So I think that's also what helped us sort of get through it. It was like we had each other, we were investigating this together. Uh, and so having a partner to, to do this with um, made all the difference, but it was, um, it was a lot of work. And then of course, you know, you asked about the process, but after I finished all of the reporting, I then had to sit down and write this story. So I had to figure out how do I pull in all of the different sort of elements um, of what I reported over these many months in the field to tell one story. So that was challenging. <laughs> If I understood correctly, Natasha Daly, you mean that um, Kirsten and yourself are very complementary, for example. Uh, she's the one taking the photo while uh, you're uh, questioning uh, the locals. Yeah, so she's the photographer. I'm the I'm the writer. So 
Exactly. So when we're on a location, she's taking photos um, and I'm interviewing people. Uh, I would always have a translator if I didn't speak the, the language uh, wherever I was to help me communicate. Um, but that's what we are. But, you know, after when we'd leave somewhere, when we'd sort of be planning out the next day, we are both working together on the investigation, if that makes sense. Um, but then when we were actually at a location, we'd each be doing kind of different things. But ultimately, it was the same investigation. Um, so having someone else to, to be there with you and bounce ideas off, off of and, you know, if someone told me something that didn't really make sense, she was there. And so we could sort of talk about it. And that made all the difference. And, you know, I, I, we hope that we're going to be able to do another story together uh, sometime soon because for both of us, it was it was a wonderful experience to do this together. And during these uh, four months on the field, what was your relationship with rejection? Because maybe that all these people, all, the, all these locals knew that you were, you were going to portray them in a very negative way and to show the, the dark side, if I can say Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that's, of course, a really good question. I think our intention was always just to tell the truth and find the truth about what was going on. So we never intended to portray anyone in, in a negative or positive light. We just wanted to portray situations as they were. Um, and so I think that that was sort of um, what it came down to. And I would always say, tell people who I am, a National Geographic journalist, the story I was telling about wildlife tourism And then essentially let them tell me their story. And so, you know, everything you read um, in the magazine and everything you see in our documentary is, is you know, true based on, on what we observed and what people told us. So I think that, you know, I, I was a bit concerned because... Um, Wild, like wildlife tourism has gotten a lot of negative attention over the past several years, especially elephant riding, etc. And so I didn't know if people would want to talk to me to, to talk about this, um, this subject. Uh, but I think that what I found was that people really wanted the opportunity to share their side of the story. And that was what was most important to me was that I would let people tell their own story and then put it in my larger story and let the reader sort of decide um, what they agreed with or didn't agree with or whatever. So I think I found that, yeah, people, um, if they had the opportunity to either talk to me to share their story or, or not talk to me, most of the time people chose to talk um, and share their story and um, share their opinion. And I think that was, that was really, Uh, I really appreciated every single person that took the time to, to talk to me and share um, because I know it's not an easy subject to discuss. On one side, uh, the animals are uh, treated very badly. But as you said, when you were talking to the locals, maybe that you had some empathy for them because, you know, sometimes they are forced to do it. But I also believe that This story is two years old. So right now, maybe that the animals are happier. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good question. I think that, oh, of course, everywhere I went, um, almost everywhere I went, uh, I had tremendous empathy, especially for people who were uh, workers at a larger camp, for example, who made very little money, uh, who who did this job in many cases because they didn't have another option. I mean, I think that, Ultimately, what it comes down to, and this is the case in so many places, is that um, there's 
the kind of where the power is is sort of at the top the owners of the camps um the government and and kind of everyone under that who is working for very little money um they don't have a lot of control over the situation but i will say that i think ultimately who is in control in any form of wildlife tourism is the consumer. So it's travelers, it's people who are willing to pay money for these activities because the activities only exist because people are willing to pay for them. And, you know, if people decide, I don't want to pay for elephant rides anymore and the money's not there, then the operators would have to kind of change what they're doing. So I think that that if there's any sort of important takeaway from this story, it's that the role of the consumer is so, so, so important. And that's what dictates everything. Um, so really, I mean, I think the market ultimately follows uh, the consumer and that's and the consumer in this case is you and me or, or the people who are who are on vacation paying for these activities. So Yes, absolutely. Uh, because at the end, I think that it was uh, the final thought and reflection. You said consumers have the power to change things. Exactly. Uh, that's all it comes down to. The consumers have the power to change so much about this industry. Uh, and so that's what I, that's the message I wanted people to take away that like you reading this story If you don't like what you're reading, you can actually do something about it. You can, you know, um, make decisions not to participate in this stuff when you go on vacation. You can kind of tell your friends and family. And I think uh, ultimately that that is sort of was the, the power of this story. And, you know, one example that I love from this, um, you asked me if any of the animals are maybe doing better now. Uh, yeah, I mean, at least one. Uh, so there was an a young elephant who was very, very sick, who we found um, he was being kept under a stadium in Thailand on a short chain. Um, and he had a sore on his head. His, his leg was swollen. Anyway, we put him in our story and people were so just outraged at his condition um, that they, people, thousands and thousands of people signed a petition to get him uh, taken to a sanctuary. And uh, one sanctuary listened and they actually were able to secure his release. And now he is doing so well. Um, he's living on Elephant Nature Park in Thailand. He's happy. He's healed. Uh, and so I know that that was because of our story. Uh, and no one would even know he existed if they hadn't seen him. So that's, you know, a really good feeling if we can kind of help one animal uh Uh, and which we which the story did i think that that was that kind of made it all worth it so um that was it's really really great uh to kind of be able to follow his journey and see how he's doing now and it shows the power that people have to kind of make change so people saw him they signed petitions they made it happen and so you know people do have power to make the world a better place for animals This elephant is living his best life. I guess that right now he's uh, taking a little bath in the in the swimming pool. Maybe we don't know. <laughs> Probably he loves water. Uh, he he loves splashing around, and yeah, he really is living his best life. He is doing so well. So now it's now he has years, hopefully years and years ahead of him it, of living sort of this this carefree lifestyle, which is it's feels really great to know. <laughs> Natasha Daly, he's an elephant. Of course that he loves water. <laughs> exactly, yes. I, I don't know if there's any elephant that doesn't. Maybe somewhere, but uh, yeah, he uh, he's living water. He's loving water. He's doing everything an elephant kind of should be doing. So it's really great. 
when I was reading the full story and article, I uh, noticed that, uh, I don't know if this is uh, the elephant you were mentioning, but you were always referring uh, to Mina's life. Yes, Mina. So, so Mina was the elephant that was kept on the short chain with the spikes who I, who I found, who I returned and found at night. Uh, this elephant was, his name was Glyhom. So he was a boy and Mina was a girl. Um, but yeah, I know it's hard. There's, there, I, I referenced a few kind of younger elephants in the story. And you are explaining that they are following a very strict process all along their life, for example, uh, performing in shows until age 10, uh, becoming after that a riding elephant, and then uh, she will die. Yeah, I mean, elephants, uh, I don't know if, if a lot of people realize this, but, uh, but elephants can live as long as humans. I mean, they can live between kind of, they can live up to 80 years, for example. So um, they have very long lives. So the idea that, you know, they're kind of, when they're born, um, they they spend 10 years performing in shows, and then they spend the rest of their life basically giving rides. I mean, it is a long time to be doing those things. And of course, it depends on the elephant, it depends on the camp. But, you know, generally speaking, this is sort of the trajectory of the life of an elephant in the tourism industry. Um so yeah, I mean, it's it's a long, long time to be doing uh, these things when you think about it. Um, and to be living in a tiny stall, to be kept on a chain. I mean, for a lot of elephants, this is sort of the reality. So um, it's, it's uh, I think the lifespan factor is something that really makes it a lot of, sh uh, that really makes it shocking to people. And in the future, when it will be possible, what location would you love to cover uh, in the world? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I haven't traveled pretty much like anyone else. I haven't traveled in over a year. Uh, such a good question. I would love to go to Australia. I would. There's so many amazing wildlife stories to tell in Australia. I would. I would love to. To, to report there. Um, I would love to go back to the Amazon rainforest. I've been there two times now to tell stories, but I, 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 I want to go back. Like I'll never get tired of going there and telling stories about animals. Um, where else? I would love to go one day to Antarctica. Uh, that would be a dream for me to report on. I don't know if it'll happen anytime soon, but one day that would be incredible. Um, but yeah, I'm just excited to be able to travel again. I've spent a year, um, you know, telling stories using my phone from home. Everyone at Nat Geo is working from, from home right now. Um, so once I can travel to tell a story again in a field and like meet with people and interview people in person, not over the phone, that's going to be uh, really exciting. So I'm definitely looking forward to the day that that can happen again, as I'm sure everyone is looking forward to being able to, to travel and kind of get out in the world. So I'm sure you are as well. But whenever you are going, unfortunately, I feel that your work with, will always be related uh, to how social media and um, societal trend uh, shape uh, all the perception because of the mondialization and the globalization. Absolutely. Uh, I do a lot of reporting on how social media and, and social trends shape our perception of 
perceptions of animals, our interactions with animals, all that stuff. Because, and it's not like I chose to really um, focus on that. It's just, it, it's what naturally happened. So I'm telling stories about animals and people and naturally social media and the internet and um, trends is all going to kind of be a part of that because that's, that's what's affecting um, this stuff so much. Uh, so yeah, I, you're right. I think that I'm going to continue to kind of that social media is going to continue to play a role in my storytelling just because it's so prominent. It's just like kind of right in the middle of everything. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, I wish I could predict what kind of the next big trend is going to be with animals, but I, I, you know, I don't know yet, but, um, it's important to me also to tell those stories because it's like, it's very current. It's very sort of like what is happening right now. And I think that it, a lot of people can relate when I'm telling stories about animals that, um, how they're affected by like people's behavior online or people on vacation like people can relate to that rather than you know if i'm telling a story about an animal in a country um uh you know where it's like uh people poaching animals for example uh for use um in kind of for example so elephants being poached for their ivory tusks it's like the average person reading my story is never gonna buy ivory so maybe they can't relate to that um but you know when I'm telling a story about how like uh people on vacation are interacting with animals people reading my story can relate to that like either maybe you've ridden an elephant or you know someone who has or like maybe you want to get up close and take a picture with an elephant or whatever um so I really like telling those stories that like the average person can relate to because I feel like that um has the potential to have a lot of impact and can make change and something else that is prominent to your work, Natasha Daly, is a special interest uh, in the intersection of animals and culture. For example, um, you wrote a word called how today's toys may be arming your daughter. Yeah, so uh, the story you're talking about, I wrote several years ago when we did at Nat Geo, we did a special issue on gender. So how gender shapes our perceptions of, of culture and vice versa. Uh, so yeah, I did. A, I did a story on it didn't really have anything to do with animals. Um, but it's fun. Like occasionally I can write stories that don't have anything to do with animals, but that are just interesting. Um, so I did, yeah, that story on how uh, kind of toys designed for girls and boys can actually affect those children's development. So that was a really interesting story that I was, it was fun that I got the chance to write. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think at Nat Geo, like it, what's really interesting is that we have different desks. So we have like I'm on the animals desk. I tell stories about animals. And then we have the science desk. We have the culture desk. We have the um, environment desk uh, and the travel desk. But so everyone, like each team does their own storytelling, but often stories will really kind of overlap. So animals and science, there are lots of stories kind of in that space. Animals and travel, um, you know, environment and science. So I think like that's rather than look at it through like, each subject is like contained in a box. We really do overlap a lot. And I think that just reflects the reality of our world. I mean, all of these subjects are intertwined. Nothing sort of exists in a vacuum. Um, and that's the kind of storytelling we like to do. It's just showing how everything kind of intersects. But then like all the writers, we all sort of have our own area of focus. Uh, so that's, that's great too. You mean that every of your work 
related to animals is always uh, connected to every domain. So <gasps> Natasha Dali is at the center of everything. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, I think you could ask like any writer at Nat Geo and everyone would feel like their work is at the center of everything. Cause like, you know, I, I, yes, I tell stories about animals, but like, it's almost like you can connect it to travel. Definitely. Science for sure. Environment. Um, you know, it's all, everything's connected. Uh, you know, I have colleagues that tell stories about, um, the environment, like write stories about plastic, like how plastic is affecting our planet. But then that connects to everything else. So like plastic affects animals, it affects like science, it affects cultural habits. So I think that it's, it's sort of everything is intertwined. And that's ultimately um, just really important for everyone to remember, like nothing exists sort of like on its own um, in a bubble. Uh, so yeah, so I, I, it's cool whenever I can sort of like, tell different aspects of stories concerning animals. Um, there's so many stories to tell. And I, like, I think maybe when people think about writing about animals, they think like, I'm writing about stories about animal behavior, like why a dog does, uh, you know, why a dog barks or whatever. Uh, but really, like, there's so many different topics that relate back to animals. So my job is always interesting. I never run out of stories to tell. <laughs> This is funny you bring this up because it would be so interesting. Um, okay, I'm going to restart my son. Okay. This is funny you bring this up because it would be so interesting if you make a sort of movie or documentary about nature because the video I watched concerning the elephants and, and your, your 18 month stories, I could watch something like that for three hours straight, you know? <laughs> Oh, well, thank you. Uh, that's very nice of you to say. Oh, I had um, so much fun making that documentary. Uh, of course, the 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 subject was not fun. It was very serious. But um, I, I personally really, really enjoyed that. So I would love to do more kind of documentary storytelling. I think that um, at National Geographic, we actually do a lot of that. Like we have our magazine, we have our um, kind of our website where our stories publish. But then we also, you know, I'm sure a lot of people watching this may be familiar with uh, Nat Geo's Instagram account, which is where our photographers share photographs. Um, and so there's lots of like ways that we try to tell stories that is not just like text. So it's like, yes, there's the text story, but also we like when we can to make videos for social media or short documentaries or all signs or all sorts of different ways to tell one story. So um, I loved that it, through that experience, I was able to kind of expand my uh, my storytelling from just writing to telling a story through video as well. So I would love to keep doing that. I thought it was it was really great. And concerning National Geographic logo, since I'm young, I never understood why it was a yellow rectangle on the black background. <laughs> That's a really good question. Uh, my guess is because basically the yellow rectangle is the shape of the magazine cover. So when you see the magazine, you see the border uh, is, the, is the yellow rectangle. So that's basically where that came from. Like as... I don't know if, if many people who are used to, who are familiar with National Geographic through Instagram or something may not realize, but um, our magazine started in 1888. So it's very, very old. Um, 
uh, it, originally it was just the magazine. And originally um, there weren't even photos in the magazine, which is so interesting because everyone like associates Nat Geo with amazing photography. Uh, but for the first, you know, for a long time, uh, there weren't photographs. It was only a magazine with, with text. Uh, and then eventually, of course, uh, the editors started incorporating photography and black and white, and then eventually it, it, you know, color. And now, of course, Nat Geo is not just the magazine, but is Instagram, is um, online, is video, is, you know, the, the channel. Uh, so it's really cool to see how it's evolved. I mean, it's such an old kind of legacy institution um, that has been telling stories for, you know, a really, really long time, over a hundred years. So, um, it's, it's really cool to feel, to be part of that sort of legacy and, and continue the legacy of storytelling. Natasha Daly, your explanation made my day. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me, Victor. Uh, this has been, it's so, it's been so great to talk to, to you, uh, and to your audience. And, um, it was really nice to be here. <laughs>